We turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. We read the entire chapter, taking verse 15 as our text for the sermon this evening. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that, if any obey not the word, they may also, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days Let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips, that they speak no guile. Let let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if he be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers... They may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well doing than for evil doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few that his eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take verse 15 again as our text. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, the dark, threatening storms of persecution were coming upon the early church during Peter's day. The faithful were being required to suffer for the sake of their faith and confession. And that becomes evident in the early chapters of this book as the apostle 
addresses them in chapter 1. Strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They were elect, but they had been scattered now as a result of this persecution. The Apostle John is often called the Apostle of Love, as his epistles focus on love. The Apostle Peter is often designated the Apostle of Hope, as his epistle is characterized, really, by hope. The main point of the entire book really is addressed here in verse 15. Paul addresses in this epistle the certain hope that the believer has of everlasting glory. And that's evident again from chapter 1 on. He talks to them as saints who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He talks about the glorious salvation that is theirs as they've been chosen by God. Nothing of themselves, all according to God's grace, to an inheritance incorruptible. An inheritance isn't something they deserve. It's a gift from God. That fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. He talks about the glorious salvation that is theirs, the wondrous hope that they have. He talks about that life. They've been born again. Born again not unto a corruptible seed, but incorruptible that will last forever. He talks about the wonder by which they are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people called out of darkness into this glorious light. Paul is speaking, Peter is speaking here of the wonder and the hope that believers have in that glorious salvation. And that salvation and the knowledge of it controls the whole life of the child of God. So much so that others are going to see it. And so he addresses all of the various ways in which that comes to manifestation in society with, review, with a view to our attitude toward the authority, in the workplace with regard to our attitude toward our employer and how we work, in the home with regard to husband and wives, generally within the church. And now, really, again, emphasizes this hope so controls the believer that others see it and they will be motivated to ask questions of you concerning it. Now God prepared Peter to preach this everlasting gospel of hope. Peter was weak. He was a sinful man. You children know Peter. Sometimes we read of the things that Peter said and we, we kind of laugh. We say, Peter, why did he say that? Why would he say it that way? The fact that Peter sometimes we would say, said things without thinking. And we see ourselves so often in Peter. We read of the struggles, the difficulties that Peter experienced. And we see his weaknesses. And then we know that tragic day when Jesus had been taken by the authorities. And what did Peter do? He denied his Lord three times in three different ta- ways. And he did so vehemently with cursing and with swearing. But God picked him up. God assured him of forgiveness. Peter was brought to repentance. And God repeatedly strengthened Peter unto the role that God had called him to. Peter could have no greater joy and hope than the confidence of his salvation. He blew it again and again and again. He failed, as we do. And yet, God was faithful. And God's goodness was evident again and again. And God directed Peter to the profound awareness of that everlasting hope that was his. An appreciation for it in the way of trials, in the way of struggles. So that Peter was led more clearly to see the reason for his living. He was to live for God, for his glory. His life was not about himself. It wasn't about what he could accomplish here below. His life was to be lived for God and for his glory. And so it is, beloved, for you and for me. God's desire is not that we accumulate great wealth and riches, that we're able to have all kinds of honor, all kinds of glory here below. God's purpose is that we show forth his praise 
that we shine as lights in the midst of this world, that we're salt for the sake of His glory. Now, on account of that glorious hope that God gives us, there's no reason for terror, no reason to be afraid. That's the immediate context here. Verse 14, But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. We have much reason for terror. As we see the development of sin around us, we see the boldness with which sin is being put forward. We realize what happens to people who stand up for what's right and are willing, unashamedly, to confess the truth. They're mocked. They're ridiculed. They're castigated. There's a lot of reason for us, of ourselves, to be fearful, to be troubled. We look at the political climate. We look at the economic climate. So many occasions for us to say, there's fear, there's terror. But the hope that we have in Jesus Christ rises above that fear, above that terror. That hope that we have in Jesus Christ so controls our lives that we live out of the enjoyment of it. And it's this hope that lifts us. It's this hope that gives us courage and strength. It's going to be evident in our attitude. It's going to be evident in our speech. We're going to stand out. We're going to be different. You young people are going to look different. College students are going to look different. We know what it's like to have people that stand out. Sometimes maybe we see someone and they stand out. Maybe it's because of their clothing. We realize that person is Amish or that person is a Hutterite. And they stand out because of the clothing and the unique way in which they dress. We stand out as a result of the hope that God has placed within our hearts. And the Apostle's point by the inspiration of the Spirit is, you will stand out. And don't be ashamed to stand out. Don't be filled with fear because of that. Rather, be ready. Be ready to give an answer concerning that hope. And we look at that this evening. Ready to give an answer. Noting the meaning, the way, and the possibility. A reason of the hope that is in you. Hope is a certain longing of future glory. This longing is based on the promise of salvation that God gives us in Jesus Christ. God has promised the ultimate manifestation of our salvation and of his kingdom be future glory in the heavenly new Jerusalem with God. That's a wondrous promise. It's a promise to which we lay hold by faith. And again and again, we find it repeated in the Bible. I am the living bread, Jesus said, which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John 6, verse 51. Again, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? John 11, verses 25 and 26. Beloved, that is astounding. God comes to us and says, Though you die, yet you're going to live. God implants within us a hope that is so glorious, so wondrous, that it's everlasting. It can't be lost. The promise of eternal glory and the blessedness of heaven results then in a certain living hope within us. Now we can say three things about that hope. First, it's an expectation. It's a looking forward to the fullness of the blessedness of that promise. We have that promise. We lay hold on it by faith. But we look forward to the full realization of it. It's an expectation. God has given to us that new life of regeneration. We have it. We are new creatures in Christ. And that life is not content with an earthly life. It desires that which is heavenly and spiritual. And so hope then is an expectation. But secondly, it's a certain assurance. We sometimes talk flippantly. I hope it's going to be a nice day. I hope it won't rain. That's not the sense in which the hope of the Bible is utilized. This hope is the blessed assurance, the certainty 
of future glory on the basis of God's promise and the work of Jesus Christ. And God impresses that upon us by His Spirit. Now, there are times when that hope falters. It isn't what it ought to be. But this hope is assurance. It's never just a shrug of the shoulders. It's never just a possibility. It's a confident, assured certainty that the promise of God is real and is good. And it's for me personally. It's not just for others. I know in my heart that this promise is mine. And then finally, beloved, it's a longing for the fullness of that realization. It's not being content with life here below. Because God has implanted within me now a life that's spiritual, a life that's from above. And this isn't a cold expectation. It's a fervent, living desire for the blessedness of that future glory. For that day when God will realize in all of its perfection this glorious salvation that he has promised and given to me, all of grace. It's a hope for the glory that will be revealed in me. And that hope is expressed especially during times of trial, times of affliction. When God's people are afflicted, when they're being tested, and when the way is difficult, we look then with greater earnest anticipation for that realization that God has promised. Hope then characterizes the life of the child of God. Every aspect of our life is characterized by the fact that we have that eager expectation. We have that confident assurance. And there's an intense longing within us for the full realization of that salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. That hope rules us as mothers in the home. We're taking care of our babies. We're changing diapers. We're feeding them. We're having to deal with colicky children. We press on, knowing our life and our work is not in vain in the Lord. God has given to us not only a glorious salvation, He's promised, I will be a God to you and to your seed. And now it's our privilege to be involved in the training and the raising of a seed and conveying to that seed this glorious hope that lives in our hearts and in our souls. As we work, as we play, we are filled with joy in the hope that God has given us. As we sorrow, as we experience trials and afflictions, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We have hope. We cling to the sovereignty of God. We cling to the promises of God's word. We believe nothing happens by chance. God is ordering all things for my good and for my salvation. As Reformed believers, we have so much reason for gratitude and thankfulness. As the apostles laid out clearly again in this book, and as God lays out in his word, Jehovah God is sovereign in every aspect of my life. My salvation is all of grace. It's not of man. It's not dependent upon my works. That salvation is an unconditional wonder by which God delivers me. It's not conditioned in in any way upon anything I do. Jesus Christ is my Lord. The one seated on the throne, ruling all things, is the one who died for me, who gave his life for me. And now he's directing everything for the good of his church, his body, and his own glory. There's a living hope, beloved, that characterizes so our lives that all around us, others are able to see that hand of God in our lives. We confess it. We talk about it. We acknowledge it. And we're filled with joyful Christian emotions. The Christian life is not emotionless. The Christian life is not such that it's so serious that we have no emotions. We're filled with Christian emotions. The Psalms are filled with Christian emotions. And that's why the Psalms are so precious to us. We read through the Psalms and we relate. And what is it that comes out again and again and again? God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness. And that's our encouragement. That's our strength. Now, beloved, this hope 
comes to expression in our lives very practically. We see that in the Bible. Joseph. And again, it's hard for us even to imagine what Joseph went through. Imagine you young people, your siblings all turning on you, trying to kill you, and they decided, well, we'll just sell them into slavery so that we'll be rid of them. And so that your siblings sell you away. They get rid of you. They send you off. And now you're lonely. You don't have anybody in whom to put any confidence or trust. You're alone. And yet, what do we see with regard to Joseph? We see that hope living in his heart. No one could take it from him. And that hope is expressed in the jail. It's expressed in Potiphar's house. It's expressed again and again and again as God gave expression to his life as one of his children. We see that in David. Saul is trying to take his life And Saul is after David, and David is fleeing. David is despairing at times, and yet, through it all, God upholding him, giving him strength, graciously working in his life that David did not seek revenge as Saul was doing, but was willing and able yet to have a godly perspective, to live out of that hope, and to pursue the things that were good and spiritual. Beloved, this hope so dominates our lives that we confess, I'm a pilgrim, I'm a stranger. This earth isn't my home. I'm thankful for the beautiful home I have, thankful for the work that I'm able to do, thankful for all the relationships I have. But this hope shows itself in a deep dissatisfaction with earthly life because of sin and a firm conviction. My life is hid in God. In Jesus Christ. My life is from above. It's a heavenly life. And my desire is to be with my Lord and to live with Him to all eternity. Beloved, that dominates and controls our conduct and our attitude. So be ready always to give an answer to every man, the Apostle says. Because concerning this hope, people are going to ask you. It's unavoidable. They cannot help but see it. This is like in chapter 2, when the apostle said in verse, thir- in verse 12, that they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. The wicked are speaking evil against you, but they're going to see those good works that God is working in you. And you need to be ready then to give an answer. They're going to see a soberness. They're going to see a spiritual maturity. They're going to see in you a longing. They're going to see you living according to your convictions. They're going to say, there's something different about that one. You high school students, they're going to see the way you work. They're going to see the way you conduct yourself at work. They're going to hear the way you talk. And they're going to notice there's something different about that one. As college students, your professors are going to notice something about you. They're going to notice there's something unique about that one. That one not only knows the scriptures, but has convictions. They're willing to speak and they're willing to act according to those convictions. They're going to see you in the hospital. And the nurses and the doctors are going to be struck. There's a difference between you and this other patient that's laying in this other hospital bed. They're going to see you when you're getting treatment. They're going to notice you when you're at the grocery store. Peter is presupposing here the fact, by the inspiration of the Spirit, this hope can't be hid. This hope can't be hid under a candlestick. It's going to be demonstrated. And you're not going to be such that you're always embarrassed to speak about that hope. That hope is going to live. You're going to go to church. You're going to go to societies. You're going to make time to speak to others concerning that hope. Your neighbors are going to notice that. They're going to see it. And you're not afraid to talk about spiritual things when they come to your attention. You're not afraid to bring them up when others ask you a question. The hope that you have and I have is an everlasting living hope so that we cannot but speak 
concerning it. You're going to testify that this life isn't your permanent dwelling place, but a pilgrim. You're but a stranger here below. You're a child of God. Now, Peter failed. Peter failed in his example. He failed in his witness. And Peter knew that. And Peter was moved to repentance and deep sorrow. But God came to Peter. And Jesus restored him, assured him, Peter, feed my sheep. And Peter was yet set forth as one who was to be involved in living out of this glorious hope. We fail. God works in us. Shame. We look back and we say, I should have dealt with that situation differently. I should have said this instead. I shouldn't have been so negative. I shouldn't have spoken evil about that person, that situation. God brings us to repentance. And he strengthens us in the resolve that we live out of that hope. And we be a witness. Our confession is that this world is not our home. With the patriarchs of old, we're seeking that heavenly home. Our citizenship is in glory. So, beloved, you may be on your sickbed. You may be financially broke. You may have lived through one heartache after another heartache. But you are not as one without hope. That spiritual hope yet lives in your hearts. And it lifts you above the earthly and it propels you into the enjoyment and anticipation of the spiritual. Are you ready to give an answer? Now, literally, the idea here is to give an apology. Are you ready to give an apology? Now, that doesn't mean that you apologize for that hope. Too often, isn't that our response? We're kind of ashamed. We don't want to be singled out. We don't want to look different. And someone notices the fact that, hey, you're not willing to work on Sunday. Why? And we're kind of ashamed about that. And they say, well, don't worry. You can come in at noon instead. And we say, no, the whole day. Um, You know, I go to church twice. And they really become filled with questions like, you go to church twice? You want to take off the whole day? And we're kind of ashamed. We We don't really know that we want to stand out that much. So easy. We become apologetic. We try to evade the questions about spiritual things. We don't want to have to stand out and to tell the whole truth about something. We don't want to leave the impression that someone else feels bad then about their convictions or about their religious perspective. And so we're fearful about what they might think, how they might treat us. That's not the idea here of the word apology. The word apology comes from the court setting. And it comes from a setting where Christians were called before judges. And they had to give an answer now for their conduct and for their, the circumstances and situation of their life. And so as they stood before these wicked judges now, they had to support their cause and they had to present their case before that judge, knowing full well it may be that this judge is going to kill me. This judge is going to take my life. But here's my opportunity now to give them a reason why I did what I did. The Christian always must be ready to present his case, to present his defense, to give a reason of that hope that lives within his heart, to render an account for that hope, why he holds that hope in his heart. And this doesn't involve profound doctrinal discussions. That's not the idea here of the apostle. Again, this is in the context of basic Christian living, having to do with the fact that my walk and my conduct is going to look different. And I need to give an expression of who God is, what God means to me. And my desire and delight then in worshiping that God. An explanation that's logical, that's reasonable, that's intelligent, but most importantly, heartfelt. This is what lives in my heart. This is who God is to me. This is what I believe concerning my God. And that doesn't mean, again, that we're able to explain every doctrine in profound detail. We know what we believe. We know whom we believe. And we know that he is to be worshipped and that he demands all authority. And we know the Bible and the place of the Bible in our lives. And we're willing to confess that it's not my will, thy will be done. And God's will is set forth in scriptures. Now there's times then when we may find ourselves in situations and we come away embarrassed. We should have known more about that. 
Well, God gives us literature. We have pamphlets on all different subjects. Grab a pamphlet, read up on it, so that next time we can be better equipped. We have the helpful book, The Doctrine According to Godliness, that has just brief snippets on all the different aspects of doctrine and practice. And so we take that book and we read up on it so that we can be better equipped next time. But at all times, we're ready to give a reason for that hope. We're never found without that hope. That hope always is living within us. There are times we're tempted to pity ourselves, to focus on our own problems, discouraged, depressed. Then we have to look to God's Word. We have to look to fellow saints to encourage us, to strengthen us. The canons of Dort beautifully direct us in times when we are struggling that way to make use of the means that God has provided. Keep coming to church. Spend time in prayer. Be in the Word of God. And trust that God will restore that hope and that joy. Being in the Word is an important aspect of this hope living in our hearts. As we're in the Word, as we're grounded in the truth, as we better understand the promises of God, as we delve into those promises and live out of them, God strengthens that hope. And that hope comes to expression. How often don't you find it that in the morning before you go to work, you read a verse or you read a passage from Scripture and throughout the day you find yourself calling it to memory. And then perhaps you have occasion to interact with someone and that verse speaks to their situation and you're able to talk with them about it and you're able to lift them up, to build them up by use of that which encouraged you. How God uses his word in such marvelous ways, not only for us, but then also as a means by which we in turn are able to convey that hope to others. Desiring to submit to the whole counsel of God. Desiring to submit to every aspect of that word of God. And praying for that grace. Not content with inconsistencies in my life, but wanting to see every area of my life come into subjection to God and to His Word. And that enthusiasm for God and His will and His Word will be evident in our life and in our witness. It's not merely because I don't want to work on Sunday. It's because of God's Word. And it's because of God's will and my love for God that I act and make the decisions that I do. That enthusiasm for the Word of God, that living out of the Word, stirs that hope and encourages us in the pursuit of the things that are spiritual and heavenly. When we experience the wonder of God's love, when we live in the consciousness that I am forgiven, there's a spontaneous joy that's worked in my heart as a testimony to God's goodness, God's mercy, and God's faithfulness. And beloved, we might say, this is the main way in which God adds to his church. Repeatedly it's found. Is it not as good as lectures and mailings and advertisement and Facebook pages and the live stream and all of that are? Ultimately, what does it come down to? Personal witnessing. Speaking to others concerning that hope. Bringing them into worship with us. The living spiritual life of the joy-filled believer that cannot contain and keep quiet concerning the glorious hope that is mine in Christ. Now how are we to do that? The way is set forth here in our text with meekness. That's humbling and that pricks us, doesn't it? Immediately our temptation is pride. Look at what I know. Look at how educated I am. Look at how much better my life is than yours. Peter presupposes, by the inspiration of the Spirit, our response is so quickly pride. I'm a Christian. You must not be. Therefore, I can deal with my problems and situations much better than you. The pride that I'm better than these others in my life. They work on Sunday after all. I don't. They can't handle the circumstances. They're not willing to be in the Word. I am. I pray. They don't even seem to pray much. Sometimes 
We give ourselves so quickly to that pride with meekness, humility. You are who you are by the grace of God. The fact that you are different is not anything of yourself. This is a gift of God's grace. Humbly we respond. This hope is a gift from God. This hope is nothing of myself. This is all of God's grace. The only difference between me and a believer and an unbeliever is God. That God has opened my eyes. That God has given me to know the blessed hope. That he works in me sorrow and repentance and turns me from my sin. By nature, I'm no different. Beloved, there must be humility. A willingness to confess our sins, admit our shortcomings. Meekness is the virtue that enables us to suffer for the sake of the hope that is in us. That's really been the focus of the apostle through these last two chapters. Because of that hope, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer in society. You're going to suffer in the workplace. You're going to suffer in your home. As husband, as wife, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be suffering within the church. There's going to be suffering because of the fact that that meekness and that humility does not allow for vengeance. It doesn't allow for anger. It doesn't allow for getting back. In meekness, we submit. Even in the face of persecution, oppression, because we speak the truth in love. Now we are not afraid of that. That's the occasion of verse 14 again. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. If you're suffering for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, says the apostle. This gives evidence of joy. You're suffering for Christ's sake. It's in that context then that we understand the fear with meekness and fear. Not a fear of men, a fear of God. What does that godly fear look like? Godly fear is what motivates us. Godly fear is what incites us. We fear God. And that fear is adoration, reverence, gratitude and thanksgiving toward Him as the Almighty God who's my Savior. He's the one who's called me out of darkness into light. He's the one who gives me purpose in living. Why did He... Call me. Why did he create me? That I might show forth his praise. And so I reflect on his truth. I reflect on his goodness. I reflect on his righteousness. And I live out of the wonder of his goodness and his mercy. Ready to love unconditionally. Ready to forgive even as I've been forgiven. Willing to lovingly rebuke those who walk in sin. Not desiring to see them continue in their sin unto destruction. Our fear of God and our fear of God's word, our reverence, our awe motivates us to speak concerning that hope. Godly fear is expressed by desire to walk with him. Even though it means suffering, opposition, and affliction. We make a confession of our faith And we stand with him, living for his glory, even though we know there's going to be a price. The saints in Peter's time were paying the ultimate price, their lives. They were being killed because of their willingness to stand in the fear of God. In that regard, beloved, our witness is not passive, it's active. We don't merely stand around waiting for someone maybe to start asking us some questions. We're motivated by this hope. And this hope so controls us that it can't be hid. We will stand out in the midst of this world. Now an important point with regard to Christian witnessing is made by our text. As I stated before, there are many who think the main way to witness would be handing out tracts, perhaps going door to door, asking people if they're saved, being able to interact with them in that way. There's a certain truth to that. There's no doubt some effectiveness there. But there's a certain sense, is there not, where it's easier to go to people that have never seen us, who never have seen how we live. The apostle says, no, that's not. That's not the witness that God calls you to. Your witness is among those 
whom you live. There's a place for that broad kind of witness by God's people. But that's not nearly as effective as your witness toward those who know you. And the point of our text is this. Your life is your witness. Others will see how you live, and they will desire to see a reason for it. And this witness will give glory, will give honor to God. The point is the wonder of God's grace, giving us this great salvation, working in us this hope, working in us this meekness, this humility. So that those around us see, we sin. What do we do then? We say sorry. We confess that sin. We're those who are willing to go to the brother and confess sin to the brother or to the sister. Regardless of whether we're mocked or appreciated, we continue in that thankful hope. Praying that God will bless that witness for his glory. Meekness, fear, characterize that way. How is it possible? Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That can also read, sanctify the Lord Christ in your heart. Now immediately that raises questions in our minds. How are we able to make God holy in our hearts? God is holy. He's the Holy One. He calls Himself by that name. The Apostle referenced that in chapter 1. God's holiness and the calling that we have. Be ye holy, even as God is holy. These admonitions seem to require of us something that's impossible. How would we sanctify the Lord God in our heart? We know salvation is all of God. We know, sal- we know salvation and sanctification are all of God. They're God's work. At the same time, God includes these kind of admonitions in the Bible. He includes this here in a detailed description of how we're to be living in the midst of this world. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Now, we can't sanctify God himself in our hearts, but we can sanctify our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit so that God in Christ becomes manifest in our lives to a fuller measure. God not only dwells with His people, He dwells in us by His Spirit. He dwells in our hearts. And we, as those who are united to Christ by faith, confess our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. What is it to be holy? It's to say no to sin and to say yes to the things that are good and right. It's to be separated from sin and consecrated to God. Be ye, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That is, live in such a way that that's evident. That you are saying no to the things of sin. You're rejecting sin. And you're living as those who confess God, His glory, His goodness. God sanctifies us by His Spirit and dwells in us to make us His children. And as that work of God is performed in us, we're called to live so that God's holiness is evident in what we do in the decisions we make. Be ye holy, even as God is holy. If we confess to be God's, to belong to Jesus Christ, We say that we're sanctified by Christ, and we say, but I can keep watching this porn. It's okay. It doesn't matter what I set my eyes on. We live the lie. That's not obedience to God and to His Word. That's not what it means to be sanctified. We don't say, I'm a child of God, so it doesn't really matter how I conduct myself, how I live. It matters. God says, you're my child. Now this is how you are to live. Live out of the Spirit. Say no to sin. Walk in a way that gives glory and honor to God. When others see holiness in our lives, they see God in us, not in the sense that we become divine, but that the holiness is God's work. That's not our doing. This is the work of God's grace, restoring His image as the image of Christ within us. We who are justified hear the glorious words, neither do I condemn thee. We are declared righteous in God's sight through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Out of that glorious declaration of justification flows what Peter calls here a good conversation. Brave, beautiful piety shines forth in the lives of God's children. To sanctify the Lord God in your hearts is to consecrate all the actions of our lives to the Lord. We live not for self. We live unto Him. And we keep our hearts separated unto Him. We seek to show forth His praise. We desire to honor Him. We don't want to give occasion for any blasphemy in any area of our life. On the bus, on the playground, in the classroom, in our dating, how we spend our Sundays, in the entertainment we enjoy, what we set our eyes on, what we do with our hands. We're sensitive to that. Christ is my Lord. He rules me, and I must submit to Him. And so sensitive we are that we're willing to forego certain things so as not to lead someone else astray, or because we know our own weakness and we know I ought not go there because so quickly the devil's going to get a hold of me. Christ dwells in my heart, and he's the one who's Lord of that sanctuary. And all the issues of my heart must be focused on Christ, on his glory, and pursuing the things that are in him. The justified child of God lives out of that glorious justification as one now who confesses himself to not be his own, but to be Christ's. My heart is the sanctuary of Jesus Christ, and now I am to live unto him. My body is not to be joined to a harlot. That's to bring Christ into a relationship that's wicked and sinful. I'm to live unto him with body and soul. Now, beloved, where that daily desire to live in holiness is not found, there's not going to be hope. We're not living out of hope. God works grace by which that sanctification is evident. And that's reflected in our lives. And our conduct demonstrates that desire to be pure, even as Christ is pure. To live out of the holiness that is in Jesus Christ. To be holy as he is holy. And God works in us then the grace by which the power of the cross is evident in our lives. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is seen. And there's a witness there. How often throughout the Bible did not God use the witness of his children to bring persecutors to the feet of Jesus? How often those who are persecuting Brought to the point where they, they see the conduct. They see how these individuals are interacting and they're filled with awe. We have biblical accounts of that. Think of the cross of Jesus Christ and the centurion who's standing before the cross and he's witnessing everything that's going on. He was a persecutor. He was involved in that murder. And the more he sees things, the more he's brought. This man was innocent. And God brings him to the feet, foot of the cross, and brings him to know and to confess his sin. God using that sanctified conduct of his children, their humility, their meekness, to bring others to see the wonder and the power of his grace. Apart from that active, disciplined, spiritual life, again, there's no faithful witness. And Peter knew that. Peter knew that very well. Peter had been a follower of Jesus Christ. He did miracles. He was with his Lord. And then what did he do? Three times, in three different occasions, he said, I know not the man. I know not the man. All the more emphatic, cursing and swearing. What did Peter do to his witness? Beloved, you and I do that. We fail regularly. Who are they, people say, to talk about us? Well, look at how they conduct themselves. Look at their sportsmanship on the basketball or volleyball court. We can hear the language that they're speaking. They're cursing. They're swearing. Who are they? Who are the prots to criticize our doctrine when their activity, their speech, is even 
shamed by non-Christians. They talk about getting drunk. They talk about sex. They talk about R-rated movies. Beloved, we bring shame. We fail. But what did Peter learn through his failures? Nothing can separate us from that glorious hope. That hope cannot be lost. God preserved him. God kept him. Peter knew it wasn't of himself. This salvation is an everlasting salvation. This salvation is in Christ. God is the one who renews me. He restores me. He works in me sorrow. He brings me to repentance. He gives me to know the wonder of Christ and his faithfulness in my life. And beloved, that's what God does to you and me, does he not? He brings us to see our sin. He brings us to repentance. He works in us the shame, but also the joy of the forgiveness that's in Jesus Christ. And he assures us, nothing can separate you from the wonder of my love. And beloved, what does that do? That strengthens our hope. All the more, I live unto him. I desire to show forth his praise. And if that means suffering, I count it a privilege. Knowing that that suffering is good. It's good for the effect that it has on me. It's good for the tendency toward the glory of God. It's good for the witness that it will have toward others. And I pray for the grace to be ready to give an answer. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we are weak and we are sinful. Our example, our witness fails on so many accounts. We stand in awe of thy mercy, of thy goodness, of the love with which thou hast loved us in Jesus Christ. And we thank thee for that glorious hope, a hope that thou dost preserve and keep within us so that we are able to be assured that we are being kept and preserved by thee for that glorious salvation, that inheritance that awaits. May we ever be ready to give an answer of that glorious hope. Amen.